I am not an expert. I've never published a book or taught a class. I've never even put anything in a quilt show. But I love quilting, and I love talking about quilting. I make a lot of mistakes, but I like to think that sometimes I learn from them and get just a little bit better. If hearing about someone else's goofs and mess-ups makes you feel better about yours, then I've done my job. Join me as we talk about quilting for the rest of us. Hey, I'm Sandy and I'm a quilter. Welcome to episode 012, In Which We Are Valued. And we'll get to the content in a minute, but first, we're going to start right off with a Quilters Like the Rest of Us interview, and this one is with Sue Reynolds. I do have to apologize, we were talking outside, and the wind was a little bit stronger than I thought it was, and periodically you hear some very obnoxious crows that kept coming near us to eat bread. Uh, so I apologize for that, but the uh, the interview itself is wonderful, so I hope you'll enjoy it. All right, so let's start and let you introduce yourself. My name is Sue Reynolds. I live in Brockport. I'm a retired school counselor, and I love to quilt. So how long have you been quilting? Well, I started around 1987, and my first quilt I cut out with scissors, and, <laughs> and I thought, I'll never like this very much. And right then is about when rotary cutting came out, and I so rotary cutters changed your life. Yes, yes, they did. <laughs> what was it about quilting that really first grabbed you other than the rotary cutters? No, no, I just thought I liked the way they looked. I liked the hominess of it all. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to learn how to do it. Is there any particular part of quilting that you like better than others? Or Well, this is ridiculous, but I really like getting all the fabric together getting it all cut and getting it all ready. I like that part. And then it goes downhill from there. I go in a bag for a couple of months. Is there something that you've always wanted to learn how to do and haven't been able to learn that yet or haven't had the opportunity to learn it yet? I mean, if I want to, there's books, there's videos, there's Mm -hmm. everything. I never in my life did any hand anything. And I decided I wanted to do a crazy quilt. Mm Mm-hmm. So I took a class and learned some basic stitches, and then, of course, had to buy about ten books <laughs> of crazy quilt stitches, and I just found that so much fun to just open up a page, see a stitch, and, and then do it on my quilt. Mm-hmm. So I really, really have enjoyed learning how to do hand stuff. Have you continued with the embroidery after doing the crazy yeah. quilt? Yeah. That is cool. Is there something about quilting or some particular method or something that you've done that you really didn't like? I like some things better than others. I've liked paper piecing. I've liked, you know, learning some of that new new stuff. (laughs) I guess it's not new except for me. No, I like pretty much everything I do. If it doesn't look like... I don't like like, to do a landscape kind of thing. I'm not into artsy stuff, really. When you walk into a quilt store, what type of fabric tends to catch your eye first? I guess the hand dye, the modas, mm-hmm. those kind of things. I'm a moda girl myself, <laughs> and to automatically walk towards it in the I think store. when I started out, I was more the country traditional, mm-hmm. and now I'm getting into crazy polka dots, you know, wilder stuff. More contemporary kind of fun Absolutely. modern. Absolutely. Hmm. A lot of the listeners to this podcast are very, very new quilters within a few months or maybe a year or so. Do you have, if you had to think of one piece of advice you could give them, what would it be? Nobody's perfect. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, the people I think that expect perfection of themselves drive themselves crazy. I'm in the school of, well, that's the best I can do right now, and it's fine. Mm -hmm. And the people that I give quilts to aren't going over it with a magnifying glass, at least I hope not. <laughs> you know, they think it's nice. It's mm -hmm. cozy, it's warm, it, I made it. Mm -hmm. They like it. And that, that's what I like. So cut yourself some slack. Absolutely. Jeez. <laughs> okay, so pod quilters, it's great to be back with you again. And first things first, lots of you have responded to my question about the length of this podcast. For those of you who may be listening for the first time, my commitment had been to keep my podcast to about 20 to 30 minutes in length. And I was really able to do that for maybe the first, oh, three or four episodes. But as I began to get more and more great listener comments to share, and as I delved into deeper topics, my podcast began to, oh, shall we say, they expanded. Uh, so last week's episode, I posed three possibilities or three options. And the first was to just keep doing what I was doing and not worry about the length. The second option was to skip listener comments and personal updates and really keep the, con the podcast content only. And then the third option was to actually do two podcasts a week, one that would be all the listener comments and personal updates, and then the second one with the content. However, surprisingly enough to me, actually, so far, the overwhelming majority of you have said that I shouldn't worry about time and just go for it. So, here I am. Here I am, going for it. Uh, thank you again for all your responses, and you are still welcome to voice your opinions. I am still willing to change. The wonderful thing about the podcast world is it's very organic. We can change midstream. We don't have to lock ourselves in any particular format. Uh, so I am willing to change midstream if I need to. Thanks to all of you who are subscribers to this podcast. Once again, I am completely overwhelmed by the response, and I'm glad that some of you seem to be enjoying it as much as I'm enjoying doing it. So thank you for so much for those of you who are subscribing to the podcast and those of you who are going to the website and downloading it directly from there. I do want to also say thanks to everyone who has been posting comments and reviews for the podcast on iTunes. I very much appreciate that. And do remember to check out all the other great Quilty podcasts that are available through iTunes. For those of you who are thinking of starting your own, we've had a couple of people post some questions around that subject in the Big Tent Quiltcast Supergroup. Go for it. The podcast world is the purest form of democracy. Everybody has a chance to have a voice. There are lots of us who subscribe to every podcast going. Some others will just pick and choose, and that's exactly what needs to happen. Your podcast may be exactly the voice that someone is missing. So just make me a promise. If you're a listener and you start your own podcast, please don't stop listening to this one. Be sure to send me a note, however, with a link to your new podcast so that I can subscribe and I will definitely help spread the word. Thanks also for the comments on the Podbean show blog, as well as the blogspot.com blog, and for those of you who have emailed me. I do need to let you know, I am actually exploring my options for consolidating everything to one place. I'm having problems kind of keeping track of all these different um, places myself. So I'm, I'm looking into some possibilities there. Pretty soon, I'm hoping to be able to stop running through this laundry list of contact information and be able to just give you a single address. I'm shooting for having something up and running maybe by next week, maybe the week after that. Kind of depends on how long it takes me to make a decision as to what option I want to pursue. Until then, here it is. You can comment on episodes of the podcast at http colon slashy slashy quilter dot podbean dot com. Uh, 
You can join our Big Tent group using the button on the Podbean site. And remember, first you join the Quiltcast Supergroup, which is the main group with all of the Quilter Podcast subgroups. And then from there, you join the uh, podcast subgroups that you choose. And hopefully you will choose the Quilting for the Rest of Us group. You can also check out my more general Quilty Life blog at http colon slashy slashy quilting for the rest of us all one word dot blogspot dot com or you can email me at sandyquilts at gmail.com. And remember, Sandy with a Y, quilts with a Z. And you can follow me on Twitter, also sandyquiltsyz. And I do love getting the emails and the comments. I really enjoy that. Brings a little bit of brightness to my day, so please keep them coming. Remember, the deadline for the creativity challenge is coming up. I hope to start seeing some photos soon. I believe I set the deadline as June 9th, but you might want to double-check the show blog for that date. I don't have it right in front of me at the moment. That's the last opportunity you have to send me pictures of your completed creativity challenge project based on the photo that I posted with episode 009 on creativity. And I will post my own photo of my project as well. However... I won't enter my own name into the drawing. Remember, anybody who sends me a picture of a completed project based on that photo will get entered into a drawing for, and now I know what it's going to be, it's a Moda Charm Pack. I've got this gorgeous, springy Moda Charm Pack here waiting for a good home, and surely you want it to come live with you. So please uh, send send me the pictures. You can um, send them to me any way you need to do that. If you want to post the photos on your own blog and just send me the link to that entry or to that post on your blog, please do that. And we will share the photos there. Another brief announcement to let you know, uh, related to the Big Tent group, I know Big Tent is a great a great social networking site for groups. I've really enjoyed being able to be a part of it. By the way, there's a really wonderful conversation going on right now in the Quilting for the Rest of Us subgroup to the Quiltcast Supergroup about whether you perceive your own quilting, not somebody else's quilting, but how you perceive your own quilting. Is it a hobby? Is it a craft? Or is it art? Um, I think the general consensus in the conversation is that none of us really buy it as a hobby. That's <laughs> that, that to all of us just seems like too tame a word, I guess, for this obsession that is ours. Um, but there's a lot of conversation going on about the definition of craft versus art and, and how do we self-define um, our own quilting in those uh, genres. So you might want to be a part of that conversation. It's really, I posted the question just sort of on a whim because it was something I was just sort of pondering myself. I had no idea it was going to generate this fantastic conversation. So you may want to be a part of that too. If you're not entirely sure how to use Big Tent. There are excellent video guides. You can either just go to YouTube and type in Big Tent and you'll see several um, videos through YouTube or you can go to Big Tent itself and click on help and you'll find some video uh, demonstrations there as well. So I'd encourage you to do that even if you're already part of the Big Tent group and you're just kind of feeling your way around in there you may want to check out the videos as well. So Here we go to responding to listener comments. This is going to be a slightly abridged version. Like I said, I'm starting to get a lot of comments, and although I would love to individually respond to every one of them through the podcast, it's gotten to the point where I can't do that because that in itself would take a whole hour. I do really try to respond to, if anybody emails me individually, I always respond. Uh, I Sometimes I'm able to respond and follow up to comments that are left in posts on the various blogs as well. Um, Just to let you know, I do have a couple of comments on the quiltingfortherestofus.blogspot.com blog. 
the entries in which I've um, posted about my adventures with Luchador. If you're unfamiliar with Luchador or you want to learn a little bit more about how to work with it, you might want to hop on over there. Um, Don't only read the blog entries because I'm really just feeling my way along here and I haven't really figured out a whole lot yet, Um, but read the comments. Heidi Rand has left some great information in a comment, um, actually two of them now on both entries of it, about printing on Luchador. And as it turns out, she's an instructor with a new online craft course provider, or whatever you would call it, named Craft Edu, or Craft Edu, which you can find at www.craftedu.com, Craft Edu being all one word. Definitely check it out. It really is brand spanking new. They were in beta until, they're actually still in beta now. I think they're expecting to go, um, whatever you call it, non-beta, post-beta, uh, on, in June. But they have a lot of really wonderful crafts uh, classes there. Not so much in the world of quilting, except for Heidi Rand has a couple of classes on printing on Luchador and um, inkjet printing on fabric. I really want to take both of those classes, and I'm going to be doing that as soon as I get some other things out of my way. There are some classes there on the color wheel and um, using the color wheel, and those look like they're pretty intense classes as well. Um, there is one project class posted that looks like it maybe it's a um, quilted project of some sort but other than that that the emphasis there is not on so much quilting or fiber arts that there's a lot of other types of things there's beading there's polymer clay there's a whole lot of other types of crafts represented there so um, if you are a crafter even if you're a quilter and not a crafter like me uh, still go to that website and check it out um, there you may find some really interesting things there some other listener comments. Knitting Mother let me know that her daughters, the 12 and 10 year old girls that I mentioned in the last episode, are excited about their homework. However, I suddenly had was given a moment's pause and I emailed Knitting Mother and I apologized to her as well. As we all know, when kids get homework, it becomes the parents' homework. And I hope I didn't just load something on mom that will become a headache. On the flip side, I'm really excited. Wouldn't it be cool to have a podcast demographic of kids learning to quilt? That would just be a rip. So, girls, I'm excited that you're excited. I can't wait to see the pictures. Go easy on mom. And, uh, you know, get some of your friends to try it along, too, as long as their moms are willing to help out or their dads or whoever in their in their world is willing to work on sewing kinds of things. Janet commented on the color episode, and she uh, passed along a couple of resources that she's found helpful that I wanted to share with you. I am not going to be able to pronounce this name. I apologize. Maria Piegler, P-E-A-G-L-E-R, has a book entitled Color Mastery, 10 Principles for Creating Stunning Quilts that Janet recommended quite highly. And the related website for that is www.colormastery.com. Janet notes there's a color chart to print off. There's other topics on color that can be viewed or printed off. Um, and she has the uh, Maria has the first chapter of her book online at that site, so people can read the chapter and then decide if they want to buy the book. Thanks a lot, Janet, and I will post the link on the show notes to this episode. Thanks to Denise, Diana, and Holly for their comments as well. Apparently, we have inspired Denise and Diana to get color wheels for their sewing rooms. And meanwhile, I'm trying to convince Holly to do a quilt inspired by the fact that she's a runner. Hey, we get our inspiration anywhere. Frances commented that it might be helpful for new quilters, a group in which she includes herself, although I have heard her refer to herself in her own podcast, The Off-Kilter Quilt, as a new-ish quilter. 
Um, but anyway, Francis did comment that it might be helpful for new quilters to try choosing their colors once or twice the scientific way, in other words, using the color wheel, color schemes, etc., as a learning tool. Also, Francis commented on the conversation with the Sandys and wondered why we all love hearing other quilters' stories so much. I don't know. Why do we? I'd be curious if anybody's got any thoughts about that. Why do we enjoy hearing why and how other quilters started quilting? Mary Sarah commented on the interview with Beth Davis, the appraiser, and she said that it would be fun to shadow an appraiser for just a bit, just to see what they do and how it is they do it. You know, Beth gave me a couple of websites for where you can find appraisers near you, and I forgot to ever post them in the show notes. Dang, this getting old business. In any case, um, here they are now. One place you can look is on the AQS, or the American Quilter Society, website, and that's www.americanquilter.com. If on that site you type appraisers into the site search engine, the list of appraisers should come up. However, for even more information, as well as a list of appraisers, you're probably going to want to visit www.quiltappraisers.org. That's the website of the Professional Association of Appraisers Quilted Textiles, or P-A-A-Q-T, which is the professional organization for quilt appraisers. And let me just say they really need to get a better acronym because PACT doesn't say anything. Anyway, Beth Davis is a member of that association, PACT, P-A-A-Q-T, and... um, all other professional, well, I would assume, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that all other professional uh, quilt appraisers are listed there, but I would imagine they would be. So again, go to quiltappraisers.org. There's also information on that site about when you should get an appraisal, what goes into an appraisal, and a searchable list of appraisers by state. Mary Sarah, it's possible that you might find one who'd be willing to let you sit in a booth next to him during an event where they're doing appraisals or something. You never know unless you ask. Debbie left some very kind comments about the podcast in general, thanks Debbie, and asked where to leave ratings for podcasts and iTunes, and yes, sometimes it's hard to find. When you're on the actual page for the podcast, the one where you see the listings of the episodes, you have to scroll down the page to see where the comments are, especially if there's a lot of episodes that have been posted. Scroll down and you'll see customer reviews or, or something like that, listener reviews. And then there's a place where you can click on write a review. Now, that being said, the podcaster needs to have actually turned on the ability for users to leave the reviews. So not all podcasts necessarily have the link. I was going through and leaving some reviews on some other Quilty podcasts today, and I ran across one that didn't seem to have a link there for write a review. And I'm sorry, I don't remember which one it was at the time. Um, So the podcaster themselves needs to turn that on first. Most of the podcasts do have that turned on, and mine certainly does. So just scroll down when you're on that page and see if you can find it. I also want to send thanks to Darla and Nancy and Janet and Kathleen and Cindy for all sending some cyber goodwill my way. I really appreciate it. And by the way, apparently Kathleen stands as a cautionary tale to all of us about the inherent danger in our chosen obsession of quilting. She mentioned a quilting-related injury that's interfered with her ability to type. I have to laugh. Everybody thinks of quilting as this gentle old lady activity. Little did they know it has a lot in common with extreme sports. Next time someone's limping around and blames it on an old football injury, Kathleen, you can come right back at them. Yeah, well, my old quilting injury really aches when it rains out. So, thank you again to everybody who left comments. Remember, again, you can leave comments to the show notes for the episode at http colon slashy slashy quilter.podbean.com. 
You can read my blog at http colon slashy slashy quilting for the rest of us dot blogspot dot com. You can email me at sandyquilts at gmail dot com. You can follow me on Twitter at sandyquilts, both of those YZ. And you can join our Big Tent Quiltcast supergroup and from there the um, Quilting for the Rest of Us subgroup. And again, I'm looking into some way that I can combine all this in one place so that I can just say to you, go here and you'll find it all. Um, I've got a couple of options out there. I'm just right now kind of evaluating which one will do all the things I want it to do. Now, on the personal quilting update, not a whole lot going on, unless you count virtual quilting, which I guess is. Um, I have been taking an online class with Quilt University. If you're not familiar with Quilt University, definitely check it out. Excellent resource, quiltuniversity.com. I am currently in the second of the available classes on EQ6, Electric Quilt 6. I already took the first class, I think, oh, back in March, something like that. This is the second one that kind of builds on the first one. I believe there's maybe two more to take. Um, I'll probably eventually take them. I have to take a little bit of break over the summer because I travel a lot for work, so I'm not going to be able to go right into another one. Uh, But this class is going a little bit deeper into the real guts of (laughs) EQ, and I've learned an awful lot. The problem is... I got a little bit behind myself. We're actually closing in on the fourth week of the class that switches over every Friday is when the new lessons are um, posted. It's a four-week-long class. Uh, Week four starts on Friday. And do you think I did week one and two when I was supposed to? Um, By the way, Knitting Mother, make sure you're plugging your girls' ears now because always we should do our homework and our coursework exactly on time. Of course, of course we should. I didn't. So I was a little bit behind and ended up having to do three weeks worth of lessons um, all over this weekend so I could catch up to myself. And I did manage to do it. I only had uh, one part of one lesson that I couldn't get to work the way it was supposed to work. That was not a fault of the teacher, Fran Gonzalez, or of the way that class instructions were written. It's some setting I had accidentally turned off and didn't realize it, and I can't right now cipher out which one that is. Um, I just need to take a little time and go back to that particular activity. But I did at least understand what I was supposed to be doing. I knew what the ideal was. I just wasn't turning on the right toggle switch to make it happen. Other than that, though, um, even having to sort of crash through the lesson plans as I had set myself up to have to do, I still learned a lot. Um, yeah, it may not completely sink in. I'm not going to be an EQ6 whiz in, you know, next week and be able to just run and uh, do all sorts of beautiful things. However, you know, you're able to keep all the lesson plans in file, so I'm, you know, I can use them for reference at any time. Plus, the teacher, Fran Gonzalez, has written a book called EQ Simplified. I haven't bought it yet. I am probably going to, except for the fact that now EQ7 is coming out, and since... Fran had written the book EQ5 Simplified and EQ6 Simplified. I'm sort of wondering whether there's an EQ7 Simplified that's going to be coming out in the next few months and whether I might want to wait for that, because I will be upgrading to EQ7. Especially now that I actually kind of know what I'm doing and know what I can do, that is one freaking cool program. (laughs) I'm really looking forward um, to letting it rip with designing some quilts on that. So that's really what's been taking up my quilting time over the last weekend. I do have a uh, quilted pocket organizer thing that used a charm pack. I've posted about that on my blog. I have it mostly done. I haven't hand sewn the binding onto the back yet. 
probably work on that while I'm watching TV over the weekend, etc. Because, um, like I said, I've been trying to catch up with Quilt University. But I am finally on week three, during week three, and now I'll be able to do week four in a leisurely manner when it comes out on Friday. And again, fantastic class. Quilt University is a great resource, so definitely check that out. Okay, that's all I have in terms of the prelim kind of stuff, so we're going to get into the content now. Remember, this is episode 012, in which we are valued. This might actually be considered the second half of the last episode, episode 11, in which we get colorful, because in this episode, I'm going to be dealing with value. That's not financial value, that's color value. Because you see, here's the thing. Value is actually more important than color. Bam! Okay, that's the sound of all of my listeners' heads exploding. (laughs) All right, so what did I just do that whole last episode on? And some of you sent me emails that you had taken notes and you were going to go out and buy color wheels. Am I now saying that, "Eh, don't bother? No, that's actually not the case. Color is important. Value is probably, arguably, just a little bit more important. So in order to really know what you're doing, you kind of have to pay attention to both. Now, me doing research for this episode actually indicates less that I'm any sort of expert on value and that I always get it right, and more that this is something that I also really struggle with, and so I thought maybe researching something for an episode I would pick up some tips and tricks for myself as well. Because here's the thing, when I'm working on a project, I will choose colors that look wonderful together. I don't really have a problem choosing the colors. I love experimenting with different color combinations, etc. But when I get the quilt finished, I realize it's just kind of blah. And that's because, and it took me a while to realize this, that's just because I didn't have enough of a value contrast. So this is something that's really, really helpful to learn. While you're learning about color and really kind of pushing yourself in terms of the color combinations you choose and everything, you really have to pay attention to value. So we're going to start out doing a definition of value first. I'd like to always start with some definitions. I'm a dictionary kind of girl, I guess. First of all, what is value? It's really basic. When we refer to a color's value, we're referring simply to how light or how dark it is. In other words, how close or distant it is from white. Now, remember in the last episode when I gave definitions of tones, tints, and shades, and I said, hey, is this ever important to anybody except art teachers? Uh, Yes, this is where it comes into play. Value has a whole lot to do with the tones, tints, and shades. So to recap what we talked about in the last episode, a tint has white added to the original color or hue, a shade has black added to the hue, a tone has gray added to the hue, and hue is the word for color. So what does value actually do? What difference does it make? It does a few different things. Value can create the focal point in an image. Okay, the part that contrasts most strongly from the rest of it will really turn into the focal point of your quilt. So if you have a dark image on a light background, that dark image will become the focal point. If you have a light image on a dark background, the light image becomes the focal point. Whatever part has the most contrast will automatically draw somebody's eye when they're looking at your quilt. So you have to really pay attention to where you're drawing somebody's eye. You want to be able to control that. You don't want it to be accidental. In order to be in control, you got to control the value. Another thing that value does gradations in value, slight changes from dark to light or light to dark, create depth. 
Optical illusion quilts make fantastic use of this. Think of the tumbling blocks pattern, sometimes also known as baby blocks, or think of attic window. Um, those make use of value, not color, to create the 3D effect. Especially when you think of attic window, you might be most used to seeing the type that have the, the black fabric and a gray fabric as sort of the window sills with whatever is going on in the background. But you can also do attic windows with any colors going on in those sills. It really doesn't matter, as long as you pay attention to the value in order to create the 3D effect. Getting a handle on value really helps you control how people see your quilt. You can determine which parts of a design will stand out and which ones will fall into the background. Alright, so that's why value is important. Now, I did a lot of research for this episode. Like I said, value is something I don't feel like I've got a really good handle on yet, so I consulted several sources. So I'm going to give you what I learned from a variety of sources, and then at the very end I will tell you what my primary sources were, so I will give you a list of some particularly good places to reference for this. Um, so, one thing about value. If you take that standard color wheel that we talked about in the last episode, imagine a line running vertically down its center, top to bottom. When you draw that line, the colors on the left of that line are blues and greens, and those are what we call cool colors. On the right of that line, reds and yellows are warm colors. Okay, cool t colors will tend to recede in a design, and warm colors will tend to move forward. Okay, that's just tendencies, and again, it depends on what other colors you got going on in your quilt, but in general, cool colors, the blues, the greens, those types of colors will tend to recede. They will tend to kind of move backwards, and warm colors will tend to move forwards. That means that brighter, or I'm sorry, warm colors um, will tend to kind of move towards the person looking at your quilt. Uh, they will tend to advance if they're pure colors, if they're saturated colors. So there's certain types of um, colors, even if it's a, a cool color, if you're doing a quilt all in cool colors and some of those colors are really a saturated color, those will the one, be the ones that will tend to feel like they're advancing a little bit towards the person looking at your quilt. However, they will tend to recede if they're light or toned down or cool colors, as we had already mentioned. Alright, tints or things with whites added to a hue. One of my sources said that those tend to work well as background fabrics. Again, tints, lighter colors will tend to recede. They don't dominate other colors. Lighter tints help create contrast. Uh, here, think about pastels. Those tend to work well or you see them a lot in a lot of 30s quilts have pastels. Some children's quilts have pastels, although a lot also do a lot with bright and um, jewel tone fabrics. So light tints, again tint being white added to a hue, those will tend to be more background, those will tend to recede, they will play nice with other quilts without trying to take over. Shades, adding black to a hue, those are rich, they are saturated, they can sometimes be quite intense, those can create depth in a quilt. Darker shades can be extremely dramatic, and if you pair dark shades against light tints, this will provide a, a lot of contrast, and higher contrast tends to bring more drama along with it um, in life as well as in quilts. Shades, you will often see these used more in country folk art style quilts and that sort of thing. Tones, adding gray, 
One of my sources said that these can be especially troublesome to Quilter because the value is actually muted, so good contrast can be hard to achieve. Uh, tones are big in country colors, folk art, maybe darker Victorian quilts. Okay, so again, tones, adding gray, might be a little trickier to figure out where the value is, um, but you can still obviously work with them. We've all seen gorgeous quilts using those types of fabrics and those types of colors that have really worked well with value. Okay, um, a warning that haphazard value placements can make it seem like you've just got this sort of jumble going on in your blocks. It doesn't really look like you can't see any discernible pattern coming out. So you really before you, as you're planning your quilt, before you even start cutting your fabric, you really need to know where you want those lights to be, where you want the mediums to be, where you want the darks to be. Even when I've read descriptions of people doing, you know, randomized scrap quilts where they're trying not to make too many choices ahead of time, they will generally choose light versus dark first and separate things light versus dark first so that you do have some sense of where the block actually is and that's all through value. If you want shapes to blend together or if you want um, some sort of area that's not going to get a lot of attention like if you're doing a pieced background for an applique block or something like that you want to choose fabrics that are similar in value. Those are things that are going to blend. Those are things that aren't going to stand out. But if you need a pattern to stand out, if you need it to be obvious what the pattern actually is, you'd need that contrast in value. Another comment about value is that light looks bigger. All right, and one of the sources that I used, they had a churn dash block done in fabric. And in one of those, there was a dark block on a light background, and the other one was a light black on a dark background. And that light block looked bigger. They were exactly the same size. But because the light fabrics, the light values tend to really hit your eyes against a dark background, it will make it look bigger. Now all of this being said, value is relative, especially when you get to those medium fabrics. A medium fabric can look like it's a light fabric if you put it next to a very dark one, or it can look like a dark fabric if you put it next to a light one. So value, it isn't always easy to look at a fabric and say, oh, that's absolutely some sort of value. Sometimes you have to see it in relationship to other fabrics to really work out where it fits in the spectrum. Um, when you, Some of you may well have already done exercises where you've done a quilt block. Either you've designed it in EQ or you've colored it out on graph paper or you've actually made it out of fabric. And you make one block and then you make the exactly the same block but you switch the values. You put darks where all the lights are, etc. Um, when you do that with a whole quilt, a lot of times the entire pattern, the secondary patterns that emerge when you put all these blocks together, completely changes just based on where the lights and the darks show up. So really understanding value is an important component to how your whole quilt comes together, not just individual blocks, but what shows up when you put the whole quilt together. A good use of value can actually create a sense of movement in a quilt. Uh, the Storm at Sea, one of my favorite quilt patterns, haven't made one yet, really want to do one sometime. Uh, those are a perfect example of this because you can do a Storm at Sea in any color. It doesn't matter what the color is. It's where the values are placed that really makes that pattern seem to move and seem to flow across the face of the quilt. Now, the way you use color, um, or I'm sorry, the way you use value can also really kind of create a mood. One source that I found was actually a website for painters 
uh, working on color composition. And and the, the website cited Ansel Adams as an example of using a value. And Ansel Adams, if you're not familiar with his work, he was a famous photographer and worked, as far as I know, worked solely in black and white. Maybe he did color at some point, but he's famous for his black and white photography, nature photography. And how much contrast he allowed in his photos and how much, uh, you know, where the brights were and where the darks were, really every photo, even though they're all really just black and white, they all have a completely different mood, and that's because of the way he used value. We tend to think more easily of mood and ambiance when we're talking about paintings or photography, but we need to think that way in terms of our quilts as well. We have to think about what mood we want to create with our quilt. We might not tend to think of it or word it that way, but that's really what we're doing. High contrast quilts with really strong contrast between the darks and the lights can be very exciting. It can be wild. It can be fun. You can think kids' quilts. Um, but it can also be used to convey anger, hurt, pain. Some art quilts do that kind of work. On the flip side, low contrast quilts can be very comforting. They can be peaceful, uh, zen-like. I'm thinking of, there's a quilt I saw on a blog um, that I would say it was a very low contrast. It was all um, kind of mint greens and pretty pinks and light blues, but they were, it wasn't pastel. It was a little more saturated than that. But at least in the photo and the blog, very low contrast. They all kind of blended together, but it was a gorgeous quilt, and it was very peaceful. It just made you kind of want to curl up with a cup of tea. So you really need to pay careful attention to value and and figure out how it's going to affect the overall feeling of your quilt. And Alex Anderson mentions in her book, Neutral Essentials, which I talked, I think, in the episode I did in, on evaluating your stash. Maybe I probably also referenced it on the color thing. I, I read it again recently, so it's kind of fresh in my mind, but she talks about needing to have white in an all-neutral quilt to keep it from going muddy, and that's a good way to think of anything having to do with value. Even if you're intentionally going for a low-contrast quilt, you really need to assess value in some way that will help keep the whole project from just going muddy. Okay, so I just threw a whole lot at you about why value is important and what are some things that value can do or, or or create in a quilt. So that begs the question, well, how do you know what value your fabrics have? Sometimes, you know, with a lot of fabrics, it's easy to tell if you've got a really dark fabric, chances are it's never going to look like a medium or a light. You know, if you've got a really light fabric, that's the same thing. But there's a lot of fabrics in that middle spectrum there, and sometimes it can be really hard to tell what the value of a fabric is, particularly when you get to florals, large prints, because one piece of fabric can have a whole lot of values going on in there. Um, if you cut in one spot, you might have a very light sort of feel, and if you cut in another, you could get a very dark. So you really need to pay attention to that too as you're choosing your fabrics for the quilts and how you're going to use that and cut it up. So when you're choosing fabrics for a quilt, you know, as you're keeping this value in mind, you really kind of have to do some work and lay them out side by side to figure out what the relative value is of the fabrics you're assessing. One of my favorite sources for this, um, and I'm going to name it right here, and I'll give the information again at the end, Rodale's Successful Quilting Library, and particularly this book was Creative Guide to Color and Fabric. Um, that did actually, it has a great set of photos and everything to really outline this, but what it suggests is that when you're assembling all the fa fabrics that you've chosen for your quilt, 
arrange them in a row from lightest to darkest and arrange them sort of vertically away from you as they're folded and stagger the edges only about an inch because that makes it easier to look for smooth transitions. If you lay them too far apart, it's hard to kind of see them all at once. So lay the fabrics out, figure out kind of what you think is lightest to darkest with staggering those edges only about an inch so you can kind of see it all at once. Um, don't worry about the color again. Right now you're just looking at the value. What's the lightest? What's the darkest? And then once you've got them laid out, now you have to use something to kind of check your work. And there's a few tricks to this. The first um, is using what's called a red value filter. And one example of this is Martingale has what they call a ruby beholder. Um, basically it's just a piece of red plastic and you can get red plastic from a variety of places. And what you do is you look at all your fabrics through that red value filter. The red filter blanks out all the colors. So you're no longer seeing the color, you're just seeing light and dark. And the Rodale article actually does uh, offer a tip to hold the value finder up in front of your eyes rather than close to the fabric because you'll get a better overall look doing it that way. Another trick you can do, if you don't have a red value filter on hand, is um, take a picture of your fabric with a digital camera on the black and white setting. Or if you don't have a black and white setting or don't know how to use your digital camera that well, take a picture and then load it into your computer and use your photo editing software to um, create a black and white or, or grayscale version of it. Um, that, again, that will cut out all color, it'll cut out all the distracting pattern, etc., and you'll just see light and dark. Another example is if you have a copy machine at home is you can take all the fabric you've lined up, throw it on your copy machine and just make a black and white copy of it. And then finally another way to check value, although this is a little less convenient and probably a little less accurate, uh, but get really really far away from it. And you can do this either by putting it up on your design wall and walking as far away as you possibly can. Um, most of us don't have quite that much space there's also a couple of tools. There's something called a reducing glass. It looks like a magnifying glass, but it does the reverse. It actually makes things look further away. This is a great tool to have in a quilter um, studio. It helps you in value, and it also helps you as you, if you're trying to see an overall design, because again, most of us don't have enough space to really walk that far back from our design while holding this reducing glass up really helps. I've owned one of those. I've used it so many times. Um, another example is i don't know this I don't have personal experience with this but I've read this in a lot of articles apparently you can go to you know one of the big box home improvement stores and you can buy the peephole that goes into a door you can buy that separately and then you can use that to do the same thing as reducing glass if you hold that up to your eye it makes whatever you're looking at very very small so those are some ways to kind of get yourself out of looking at the color and the pattern and just looking at the the dark versus light and then um Rodale does go on to say once you've got your fabric arranged, once you know for sure that you've got it arranged in, in value uh, light to dark, then it says to take swatches from each of those fabrics and tape the swatches in order of value on, the sheet, on a sheet of white paper as a fabric reference sheet as you're going through your project. So just in case you stop in the middle and you think, oh my gosh, what was I using for a medium in that particular block, you can go back to your fabric reference sheet and know where you were going with that. I've read in a lot of articles that we all tend to lean towards medium value fabric. And I've also read that um, because we tend to buy more medium value fabrics, that tends to be more what attracts us as consumers. Most quilt stores will stock heavily in medium value. 
and less so in very lights or very darks. So what you need to do, just like, you know, I've encouraged you before to look at your stashes and figure out what colors you might be missing or, or what types of fabrics you might be missing. Here, you might want to look at your stash and figure out what values you're missing, whether you're missing really lights or really darks. And then keep that in mind next time you're at a quilt store. One of our listeners, Chris, had commented on color and value, and she had mentioned that she'd been doing some work on value recently, so I had told her I was working on this topic for my next podcast. I asked her if she had any advice to share about this particular topic, so here's what she said. Two things come to mind about value. First was looking at my stash with a color wheel that has seven values. Boy, did I have a lot of holes, and it took a while to fill in the holes in my stash. We took a trip to Arizona to visit our son and stopped at a lot of quilt stores. See, I'm giving you a perfect exa- uh, perfect excuse to go shopping. Chris goes on to say, she does have an aside. It's interesting how different quilt stores deal with value, and some don't. And then she also said, as another aside, find an interest for the husband. Mine likes coffee shops with internet access. Um, so yeah, find a way for other people in your family to be happy while you're building your stash and doing important things with value, shopping at a quilt shop. Then Chris goes on to say, the second thing that helped was in Lorraine Torrance's class where she had us do a block any design in black and white. Then she had us use the same values in different colors, monochromatic, complementary, analogous, split complementary, double split complementary, tetradic, and polychromatic. It sounds like a color project, and it is, but it's a great value one too. Finally, she had us do the reverse value. In other words, if you if originally it was the darkest, then use the lightest fabric, etc. So thank you very much for Chris uh, to Chris for those comments. That was very helpful to know, and I would concur. Definitely evaluate your stash, like I had already said. Look for really lights and really darks. Those tend to be the two ends of the spectrum that we're missing generally. And then you don't have to go to Arizona, (laughs) but do go quilt shopping. And and keep a list in your purse with you, just because sometimes, you know, we all have had those random quilt shop hops where we've ended up in a quilt store and we found ourselves thinking, now, what was it I wanted to get next time I was at a quilt store? So find a way to keep yourself a list of notes as to what kinds of things you need to get. Um, And by the way, you can get information on Lorraine Torrance, the teacher that Chris had mentioned, at um, LorraineTorrance.com. That's Lorraine, L-O-R-R-A-I-N-E, and Torrance is T-O-R-R-E-N-C-E. So, what have we learned from this episode? We have learned that in addition to your color wheels, you should obtain some method for being able to determine the value of fabrics, be that a red value filter, a digital camera, photo editing software, however you want to do that. We've also learned that if you pull fabrics for a project and something just isn't feeling right to you, do the black and white thing, do the value thing to see if it's a value problem and not a color problem. We have also learned that we can use value to create movement We can use it to draw attention to a particular part of the design, or we can use it to create an optical illusion. And I have encouraged you to evaluate your stash with a red value filter or color wheel that includes values on it, and see if there's gaping holes. And make a list of where you're lacking and carry it with you for those random stops at the quilt store. As I promised, here's the resources that I used primarily for uh, my research for this episode. The first is, there's a book called The Quilter's Ultimate Visual Guide. This is an excellent reference book on all sorts of things in the world of quilting. Um, The article that I used was Tones, Tints, and Shades, written by Virginia Robertson. I did also mention, and again, this is one of my favorite resources for quilting, 
there's it's a series put out by Rodale Publishing, Successful Quilting Library. The particular book I used for this episode is Creative Guide to Color and Fabric, but they have a ton of different volumes. They they were printed in the late 90s to maybe early 2000s, but you can still buy them um, on Amazon incredibly cheaply because they're mostly used at this point. Uh, so again, that's Rodale's Successful Quilting Library, and particularly I use the book Creative Guide to Color and Fabric. I also used About.com. About.com's section on quilting has a lot of great articles and information. And then I found, rather randomly, I had mentioned that I used some information on a website that's aimed at painters, and this was actually Jim Saw's Art 104 Design and Composition class from Palomar, Palomar College. I'm not sure when these were actually posted, but they were notes from this class he had offered at a college, and it was very helpful looking at design and value. Again, it's it's um, aimed at artists, but it, there was a lot of useful information there as well. And as and always, everything, just kind of Google color value, and you'll find all sorts of resources. So I hope this episode has been helpful to you. Uh, to be honest, this is probably the last one I'm going to do for a while that involves such heavy research. I'm going to kind of cut myself some slack and do some more sort of just for fun episodes coming up, but they will still have a point. I tend to always have a point. In any case, go evaluate your stash, see what you're missing. If you're working on a project, kind of check your value and see whether you've got enough in there to make it interesting, to make it exciting, to, to give it the movement you want to give it or to create the mood you want to do. And... While you're doing all that, go get your quilty on. Quilting for the Rest of Us is dedicated to Shirley. Love you, Mom. 